Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Literary Studies. Today I'm speaking with Michael Ignatiev about his book, On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times, published by Metropolitan Books. Michael is former head of Canada's Liberal Party and current professor at Central European University in Vienna. In this book, Michael asked the question, how do we console each other and ourselves in an age of unbelief? In a series of 17 essays, Michael considers how individuals like Marcus Aurelius, Abraham Lincoln, and Cicely Saunders have conceived of consolation. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Great to be here, Callum. Thank you. Uh, you know, first question before jumping into the book that I want to ask is if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, Caleb, I'm a, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I've been a historian all my life. I've been in, in politics, public commentary, um, but I'm, I guess, happiest as a classroom teacher. And this book uh, is a return to my roots as a historian of ideas. Uh, so I feel, I feel pretty happy coming home. I think that you you mentioned somewhere in the introduction that some of the ideas in this book were ideas that you had had going back 40 years plus. So would you say that this is a book that you have been wanting to write in some sense for a while? Or, you know, what was the sort of the spark that led you to want to write this book? Well, I think the book began by accident. I, I wasn't looking for consolation as a theme. It kind of found me. I was at a wonderful weekend, um, gathering of um, choirs in the Netherlands, and they were performing all 150 settings of the Psalms. And I was asked, God knows why, to give a lecture about justice and politics in the Psalms uh, as a kind of intermission uh, event uh, between these wonderful choirs. I can't really remember my lecture very well, but I sure remember the choirs. And, And I felt... Uh, a puzzle uh, came over me. Um, I was deeply moved by the Psalms, 
deeply moved by the music. Um, there were a lot of tears in the audience. It was a huge, you know, 2,500 people were there. And I, so I came to talk about justice and politics, and I came away thinking about consolation. That is, why is it that religious language that I don't happen to believe in is so comforting? Uh, what, 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 what gives here? Uh, it raises a fundamental question about a so supposedly secular age. Are we really as secular as we think if we can burst into tears in the middle of a choral concert in the Netherlands? I, I think not. And, and so that led me into the book. And I then backed my way into religious texts like the Psalms that I hadn't really considered before. And then from there into the secular text, which, as you said earlier, I knew very well. I'd been thinking about David Hume and Adam Smith and the European Enlightenment all of my professional life, but I hadn't really thought about their religious antecedents as clearly. And so this was a bringing together of my Enlightenment uh, experience and knowledge and a new voyage of discovery into religious and also some Greek and Roman texts that I didn't know as well. Before getting into the specific interpretations that you discuss in the book, how do you understand consolation for, I, I think, you know, funnily enough, I think consolation, even the topic is, seems, as you mentioned, like an idea that people don't even really think about that much. You know, what, what do you, what does consolation mean to you? Well, it is a word that's dropped out of the language in a way. Um, we now talk the language of mental health all the time. If someone is frightened, worried, upset, uh, we seek mental health counseling as opposed to what we used to do, which is seek consolation. Consolation is the ways in which we give meaning to or find a way to live with experiences of failure, suffering, loss, and grief. And, um, and what we're looking for when we're seeking to console ourselves or console others is to find a way to go on. So in my reading of Consolation, it's the search for hope in the middle of, of desolation. How is it that we find meaning and the will to go on, the belief that we can go on when we've suffered life's most serious reversals? It is a religious uh, concept in origin. That is, the religious answer to my question is, put your faith in God. What's happening to you may not be clear to your understanding, but God has some plan for you. And if you're suffering now, you won't suffer later because if you've led an honest life, you have a chance of going to heaven where all sorrow will cease. Well, that was the consolation structure for thousands of years in, in uh, the Christian faith, derived also from the Jewish faith. There are evident elements of this in the Islamic faith. And we are now not in a post-religious age, but we're still struggling with the same essential question, which is how do we go on when we suffer a reverse, a loss, um, a terrible grief? Um, and so that's, I began to look at various great thinkers and writers who'd address that question and learn from them. And that's what this book tries to put on the page. As you mentioned earlier, part of the inspiration for this book was a performance of the Book of Psalms. And the first two essays deal with 
uh, the notion of consolation in both the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. Can you talk about how consolation or how you understand consolation in these two texts? Well, I begin with one of the most difficult texts of all, which people have been puzzling over for thousands of years, which is the book of Job. Here's the story. It's an awful story of a, of a devout, faithful man who um, lives a godly life. And then this malign, malicious God, tempted by the devil, decides to put this man's faith to the test and then inflicts punishment after punishment after punishment on him to see whether he can break his faith and doesn't break his faith. But finally, Job has had enough. Uh, Job is reduced to, you know, covered in plague sores and rags, and he begins to shake his fist at the heavens in one of the, you know, the most dramatic moments in, you know, in history, in my view. It's a wonderfully imagined figure um, defying God and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, I'm innocent. Well, why are you punishing me? And, uh, astoundingly in the story, God replies through the whirlwind. And what God says isn't very comforting or consoling. He says, brother, you you have no idea. I am the master of the universe, and what I do is my business. And I think what he's saying, as a, an um, Israeli friend has said to me, is that there is the, the order of justice is not in this world. The order of justice is something that human beings create in this world. But the world is not a just world. And God is saying to Job, look, <laughs> the world is not just. Uh, you wake up. Understand that's this, the situation you're in. And Job then concedes that fact, and all his possessions are restored to him. So it's a very bitter tale in which you, some people read this as simply the only way to be consoled is to submit utterly to God's will. I read it very differently as an attempt by a human being to do what we all do when we suffer a great loss, which is, why did this happen to me? Do I deserve this? I mean, how am I to explain this? devastation that's fallen on me. I've lost, it could be the loss of your, your, your wife, your husband, your partner. It could be the death of your brother, your sister. It could be some terrible accident. You're just knocked down in the street and left paralyzed. I mean, these things happen all the time. And people all the time have to think, how do I go on? How do I explain this? And this is the process of consolation, of consoling yourself. But let's be clear about one thing. This book is not happy talk, uh, Caleb. Um, there are a lot of experiences for which you can only say we we are inconsolable. There's some wounds which never heal. There's some blows from which we cannot recover. And part of this tradition of writing is very respectful of that. You know, life is wonderful, but life life can be inexplicable and very hard. And and the people in this in these texts understand that. And that's one of the reasons I respect them. It's also parenthetically one of the reasons why I'm, in a way, one of the messages of this book is the mental health tradition, which in some sense inaugurated with Freud, um, is 
thinks of all suffering as illness. And consolation doesn't think of all suffering as illness. It thinks of it as just, this is what happens in a life. You're not ill. <laughs> you just, you've been hit by a truck. You're not, you know, you're, you're not neurotic. You just lost your father. You know, you're not, uh, you know, suffering from some mental disorder because you feel astounding grief having just been fired. No, you've just been fired and you're suffering and there's dignity in that suffering and you're struggling to find meaning for it. You don't need to go to a therapist. What you need is somehow to find meaning from your experience. So in a way, the consolation traditions are pre the therapeutic revolution, but rather critical of the therapeutic revolution. Unless there be any misunderstanding here, you know, I've, I've had therapy. <laughs> I'm not against therapy. But you need therapy when you're faced with something you simply cannot handle at all, when you're completely at a loss. Short of that, a lot of the suffering we experience is stuff for which you seek properly to console yourself with yourself, with others. And I hope this book will provide people with some resources that will be helpful in that enterprise. Yeah, I think, you know, I should mention that almost all of the people profiled in this book lived or were born before Freud, as you mentioned. So they are dealing before this, you know, sort of uh, influx of everyone having a therapist. And I, yeah, completely agree with you. I, I see a therapist. I think it's, it's good too, but there is a type of grief and uh, sadness that exists independently of any kind of mental condition that a person might be dealing with. Uh, you know, a, a writer uh, and a famous, you know, part of, of, of history, Roman history, Marcus Aurelius, his meditations, I think, uh, are kind of, you know, they are like the, the primary textbook for many people on how to deal with suffering. And you have an essay on Marcus Aurelius. And I think that his stoic philosophy is very interesting for thinking about consolation. So what is your sort of interpretation of Marcus Aurelius's meditations? Well, it's a, I make a general point about the whole book. I, this is not a book about texts. It's not a book about the meditations. It's a book about the lives that gave rise to these books. So the Marcus Aurelius I'm interested in is the Marcus Aurelius writing at the end of his life when he's ill, when he is, he's writing it not in Rome. People forget this. He's writing it on the on the Danube frontier in what is now Austria or Hungary, and um, he's fighting a brutal counterinsurgency war against the barbarian tribes. And he is he's at he's at his wit's end. He's been at this for fifteen years. He had no idea that this was going to be his fate. He thought, you know, I'm going to be a philosopher king and everything is going to be great. And suddenly he's fighting a war for which he's totally unprepared and they won't quit. I mean, it's a savage, brutal, horrible war. And so this is, the, this is a man writing at night to console himself. I mean, if you're an emperor, who do you turn to? You can't trust anybody. You can't talk to anybody. So he talks to himself. And this is what makes the meditation such a touching and wonderful book. He, he writes in Greek. He scratches it out on, you know, pieces of papyrus. They're saved after his death. And they're, 
the record of a, of a great man struggling to keep himself together night by night. And so they're not these kind of, you know, sophisticated, worldly, philosophical reflections by a Stoic who's above all. It's a man in the middle of turmoil. And I think it makes the meditations much more relevant and much more poignant to us today. On this sort of theme of uh, Marcus Aurelius writing at the end of his life, many of, of the essays and many of the people that you deal with are writing at the, the end of their life. What is, what does writing, you know, what, what is it like to, to, for these people to write at the end of their life when they've had these sort of long and illustrious careers? How does, how does that process through writing, like what, how does writing serve that ability to comprehend that, you know, everyone has to die at some point? It is a recurrent theme throughout the book. One, one example of that uh, is David Hume. Um, David Hume, the greatest philosopher the British Isles ever produced, is dying in the summer of 1776, the summer of the American Revolution. And he's dying of what appears to be bowel cancer or something like that. And about six weeks before he dies, he sits down and writes his autobiography. And, um, and it's a kind of reckoning with his, with, his, with his life. Both he's looking inwards but he's also presenting himself outwards to the world. This is, this is who I was and this is what I did. And it's a record of him overcoming extraordinary obstacles. One obstacle he doesn't talk about in that particular memoir, uh, which he wrote in one day and, you know, three or four pages. You can find it in a library in Edinburgh. It's fascinating to see it. He wrote it with almost no corrections, just in one go as if he'd known all his life what he wanted to say to the world and to himself about the life he'd lead. Um, you know, tying up loose ends, giving him a sense that his life had a shape. These are very human things when you're approaching the end of your life. But one of the things he doesn't talk about is that when he was 18, 19, 20, 21, he had an absolutely complete mental breakdown. Um, he was a very precocious, brilliant guy who just had ambitions for intellectual life that he couldn't realize. And th this happens to many young people. They, you know, your brain is firing on all cylinders at 18, but you don't have the capacity, the skill, the discipline to master what you're trying to do. And, and, and you, you break down. And that's what appears to have happened to Hume. He kept among his papers a letter that he wrote to a doctor in the middle of this depression saying, help me, you know, I just don't know what to do here. I don't know whether he even sent the letter, but he kept the letter and it's with his papers. It's with the papers that he didn't burn, didn't destroy. So he kept his three or four page autobiography, which is a record of my success. And there's also this little letter that he wrote in a much more youthful hand, which is a record of his despair. And I think you put the two together and you see what it is that people do when they reach the end of their lives. They want to, they want to say, did it add up to anything? Did it, did I do anything? What, what was it all for? You know, um, because you want to have that sense as you go into the darkness, that it wasn't all for nothing, you know? And so you, uh, late, late in life is a moment when you most definitely seek consolation and the consolation of feeling, yes, your life did amount to something. Um, 
and that's that's what comes through very clearly in the in the in the chapter I wrote about David Hume. A person that you profile that I I wasn't expecting to see was as a profile of Karl Marx, <laughs> and Marx probably has had a greater impact as a thinker on the world than maybe any other person. You know, at various points in time, you know, billions of people have followed a political order that Marx, you know, comes under the banner of Marxism, whether or not Marxism is synonymous with Marx. But, you know, talk about, about Marx a little bit. Why, why, why do you include him here? And, and how does Marx think about consolation? Well, I take a, I take a, an odd take on Marx. Um, the Marx I look at is the young Marx, who's just married Jenny von Westphalen. They've just moved to Paris. It's 1843, 1844. They're young revolutionaries in their 20s. And the key task that Marx set himself is to free himself from religious illusion to a degree that I think nobody, well, some scholars have appreciated. I don't claim special novelty here. Marx's first task is to criticize the religious inheritance of Hegelianism and other German philosophical systems that appear to have him by the throat. He says the critique of religion is the precondition for all critique, meaning you you can't criticize capitalism, you can't criticize injustice, you can't until you rid yourself of religious illusion. Why? Because the hope of an afterlife, the hope of paradise, prevents you from thinking seriously about how to make paradise here on earth. If you project all your longings for a better world and a less unjust world into the afterlife, you'll never seek to improve the condition of working people. You'll never seek to build a better, more just society here. And so that's the first task. And he sets about doing that. And it means that he does a very, very careful reckoning with religion. And he calls it, yes, he calls it the opium of the people. We all remember that phrase. But he also calls it a haven in a heartless world. He understands just how many needs that human beings have for reassurance and comfort flow through religious traditions. And so the task is to provide a revolutionary doctrine that will provide all of those comforts and consolation that religion once provided. And what and and what he needs, he suddenly he begins to realize, is a philosophy of history. That is a story about history that says with scientific predictive certainty that a revolution will occur that will sweep away the injustice of the world and create a better world. And that will turns out to be the comfort and consolation he offers to millions of people, as you say, for the next 150 years. There's still people who believe in the promise that Marx held out to them. And my point is simply that he offers a vision of consolation in this life that um, has had an enormous influence on people, but Almost nobody thinks of Marx as a philosopher of consolation. And in fact, a Marxist, true Marxist would be angry with me. They'd say, we want nothing to do with consolation. It's not consolation we're offering. It's scientific certainty of revolution. I think that's all guff. I think it's, I think it's consoling rhetoric that hasn't turned out to be true. But it's still to be respected as a 
very serious, formidably serious answer to the question of what do we do now that we don't believe in religion? And Marx has one of the great answers of all time. That's why it's in the book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's a, a really wonderful book called This Life by Martin Hagland, uh, who teaches at Yale. And he spends a lot of time sort of going on these themes, the kind of the uh, religious consolation element of Marx. Uh, and I do think that it's a, you know, whether or not a, a, a you know, a, a a diehard Marxist wouldn't necessarily like this interpretation. I do think that it's it's definitely there. Um, it, it, the next person that you write about is is Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln. Obviously, I don't need to introduce who Lincoln is. Uh, but you know, what what do you make of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address? And obviously, he's just this unbelievably towering figure coming into uh, the presidency at a time of just you know extreme conflict, probably, you know, greater conflict than America has, has ever seen, uh, even, you know, more than now people, you know, yeah. despite that people want to say otherwise, but, uh, you know, what, what do you make of Abraham Lincoln and the speech? Well, it, it's a, it's a speech deeply relevant to a divided America in 2022 and should be read by everybody because part of what he says, of course, is that he says, look, I'm a, you know, I've just been elected president of a country where two parts of the country have been fighting each other for four bloody years. And the problem I have is that both sides believe that God was on their side. If that continues to be true, I can't, I can't make the United States work. I, I can't be president. I, I can't do this if both sides are convinced that God was on their side. So we have to think about this differently. We have to think that the war was about slavery. We have to acknowledge that. It wasn't Southern slavery. It was American slavery. It was the original curse that cursed the founding of the United States. So it is a guilt that we all share and we all have to deal with. That's move number one. Number two move, which is not often noticed, is that he says, we really don't know, we cannot know which side God was on. We cannot know why he willed the Civil War. It is not given to human beings to have that kind of knowledge. <clears throat> this is a decisive moment. If you, if you want to define what democratic politics is, it's the shared knowledge that we do not get to know which side God is on. So it's not just a point about the Civil War. It's not just, it's a point about democratic politics. There are some forms of knowledge that none of us can have access to. And that, the knowledge we can have access to is God's intention. So anybody who comes into a political argument saying, I've got God on my side, <clears throat> is wrong, right? And 
And, and this is a terribly powerful and important argument in American politics, which many Americans, let's be very clear, don't agree with. <clears throat> he says, we, don't, we can't know what, why God caused the Civil War to happen, and we can't know which side he was on. But we do know what our duties are here and now. They're very clear. Both sides lost sons and daughters, mostly sons. Both sides have the wounded, the dead, the dying, the widows and the orphans. Our job is very clear as a country to um, comfort and care for the widow and the orphan with malice towards none and charity towards all. <clears throat> so it's saying two things that are extremely important. One, we don't have absolute knowledge of God's intention. But secondly, we do have absolute knowledge of what our duties to each other are here on earth. <clears throat> and that is the basis for democratic politics. And in the wake of a civil war that will end within weeks of his inaugural, our task is perfectly clear, which is to care for the wounded and the dying and the widows and the orphans. And he doesn't get the chance because he's assassinated 41 days later, which is the greatest tragedy in American history. On that theme to sort of round out uh, the book, obviously, you know, we don't have time to discuss every single essay and every single person, but there was someone who I'd, I'd never heard of before. I, I, I had to to, to look them up to was Cicely Saunders. Uh, and you talk about this sort of duty with Abraham Lincoln to care for the, the wounded and the dying. And, uh, you know, you, you call this chapter the good death. Uh, you know, will you just tell our listeners who Cicely Saunders is and, and her, her views on dying? I will. Cicely Saunders it was the inventor of the hospice movement. She was a physician and she was a nurse. She was both. She was British. Uh, I had the great honor of meeting her at the end of her life. Um, and she understood something fundamental about the dying process, which was that it was that hospitals were a terrible place to die. Um, and that the medical profession was failing the dying because when when no further cure medical intervention is possible, doctors don't know what to do. They just withdraw. And the dying are left with the business of dying. And she wanted to create a place, namely the hospice, where relatives and loved ones could gather and there was space and time for people to be reconciled to the end of their lives. And that's what the hospice movement has tried to do ever since. And I've got a friend right now who's in a hospice. Um, so we have Cicely Saunders to thank for this wonderful invention. And um, we have to th her to thank for something else, which I learned from her, which is she, she understood that, that the dying could do something enormously important for the living, which is if the pain could be taken away with good analgesics and good drug management, and they could be conscious and they could be with their loved ones, they could resolve unresolved family quarrels, they could be reconciled, old quarrels could be put aside, peace could be found between uh, families, 
um, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, the whole peace could be achieved. And secondly, and most importantly, the dying could tell the living, it's not so bad. It's okay. It's okay to let go. Uh, and, and, and so the hospice was not merely a place where you went to die. It was also a place where the dying could teach the living not to be afraid of death. And that's the most consoling thing you can do for any human being, is to, to do whatever you can to take away the fear of dying. And that's why she's in the book, because of all the people that I look at, she may have made the, the largest contribution um, to, to consolation in our time. Well, Michael, thank you so much. This is, you know, a very, a book that just really digs deep into topic that, you know, everyone faces in life and is obviously, you know, just at the heart of, of, you know, the meaning of, of life and, and, you know, how we are connected with each other. And, and yeah, I thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And great talking to you, Caleb. Thanks for, thanks for doing this.